Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today we're going to do another one of my favorite category of episodes. We're going to speak to an early pioneer of blogging. I uh, love the blogging into business stories because they're so unlikely, so unplanned. You know, a lot of the early bloggers didn't intend to turn their blogs into professional publications, much less businesses. It just sort of happened. And certainly fitting this bill is Richard McManus, founder of ReadWriteWeb. It's still a popular tech blog, I'm sure you know. Founded far from Silicon Valley in New Zealand, ReadWriteWeb still surfaces news and makes the leaderboard of tech meme all the time. In this episode, Richard describes his accidental ascent into entrepreneurship and sketches out the details of how blogging went professional. And at the end, we discuss what Richard is up to today, which is becoming a science fiction novelist. So be sure to check out his book, Presence, which you can order on Amazon. There's a link in the show notes and on the website. And also a quick note on this particular episode, the day I recorded it, there was construction outside of my office, so I had to beg my way into a conference room in another building, and, well, that turned out to be echoey, very echoey. I mean, you can still understand everything I say, but it's very echoey on my end, so uh, my apologies. Oh, and one more quick note, personal note, uh, my TED Talk is now live. Um, so again, there's a link to my TED talk in the show notes, also on the website. So check that out. It's related to what we're doing with this particular project about how digital media is changing the game for history and historians generally. Anyway, please enjoy this episode with the great Richard McManus. Richard McManus, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Brian. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Well, then you know that I, I like to start with uh, background stuff. Um, you uh, you went to college at uh, Victoria University of Wellington studying English literature, right? That's right, yeah. So the idea was you you wanted to be a writer? Well, to be honest, I didn't actually know what I wanted to do at that point. Um, I, I also did – I started out doing a business degree, but um, – I just uh, I just wasn't enjoying it at all, so I switched to uh, something that I was passionate about, which was literature. And um, so I did do things like I did an um, introductory information technology course. Information technology was kind of the term for um, computer computers back then. So I did one of those, and I did a few economics courses and so on. But, um, yeah, ended up going down the English lit path. Did you get enough of the, the business classes to, to be helpful to you later? <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of, but uh, what I found when I was building uh, Red Right Web was that um, you just basically learnt it all as you went along, which was kind of the story of the early web as well, I guess. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you, for your early career, um, you end up in tech. Was that sort of just accidental? How did, how did you start uh, working for generally tech companies? Yeah, I um, I think at the end of uh, my university days, I I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, so for a, you know for a few years there, I kind of floundered about doing clerical jobs, 
then I decided, well, uh, in the sort of mid to late 90s, that the web was something really exciting and it was something that perhaps I could combine, you know, my love of writing with um, my interest in technology and um, in particular how sort of um, what was what was happening in terms of information technology, which I thought was really interesting. So uh, I kind of up-trained myself to be a webmaster, um, just, you know, did, doing doing things, uh, building websites back in the late 90s. Um, I think I built a, a soccer picks website at one point, um, you know, which uh, a handful of friends uh, used with me. So it would just be like picking scores for soccer games in the English Premier League. Mm-hmm. It was just a bit of fun, and I, I sort of built a few little projects like that just to train myself and uh, HTML and, and CSS and all those other kind of early web building technologies. And eventually I ended up um, doing a knowledge management, um, working in a knowledge management consultancy, which is basically just uh, technical writing, so writing manuals for, um, you know, for Air New Zealand, I think was one of the clients in New Zealand Dairy. So, and uh, from there, I uh, got my first kind of full-time job in, in the tech space as a webmaster for Ericsson New Zealand. Um, and uh, so I did that for a few years and kind of worked my way up to a web manager position. In other words, kind of, you know, managing all the websites internal and external for, for companies. You know, maybe maybe I've actually gotten a little bit ahead of myself here. Tell me the story, first of all, of, of um, your relationship with the web and the internet, you know. Do you um, get turned on to it as a kid, that sort of thing? Like you're, you're, you're mentioning being like a webmaster and things like that. So how, how did you first come to the, the web and the Internet? Well, I guess uh, uh, the one thing to bear in mind is that New Zealand, where I live and um, was brought up, uh, is, is always, has always been a, a few years behind um, America, in particular Silicon Valley, so the web sort of came along in New Zealand in, well, I guess, you know, the same time, 93, 94, but it was only available in uh, in, in my university. You sort of had to uh, book a time in, in, in the computer room to use the internet back then. So that's, I guess, how I first started using uh, the web, the World Wide Web. And um, that got me interested in, you know, Tim Berners-Lee and what he'd built and some of the early... Uh, innovations like the the mosaic browser and so and I, I think I think I also remember playing around with um, uh, hypercard Apple's hypercard program mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. university as well uh, and we had Macintosh computers at the university um, and other than that it's just the usual story of um, as a kid um, using you know Commodore 64s and and that kind of machine in the 80s um, an IBM computer. One of my friends had one of those, so I, I used to play games on that with him. So, um, yeah, so I guess uh, I kind of, um, when I really got into the web was kind of the mid to late 90s uh, after I'd left university, and that was when I kind of ex- started exploring, you know, what was out there and what people were building. Um, but in terms of the scene in New Zealand, there, there really wasn't one in the 90s. Uh, it was... it. You know, Silicon Valley to me at that point was just some sort of, um, you know, uh, pipe dream. I, I had no idea what what it was like really. Um, so I just kind of um, played around with early websites and, you know, started building my own stuff with GeoCities and the like back then. 
Well, you know what? Uh, this is another slight aside from your your story, but um, could you tell me? Because I'm I'm super curious, and uh, probably others are. How how did the uh, commercial internet come to New Zealand? Like, so you said initially you were able to get on because you were at university, and so you had access, but. Um, just in a general sense, you know, obviously I've told the story of AOL and things like that um, in the States here on the podcast. So for New Zealanders, for Kiwis, how, how did, how did uh, New Zealand get on the web generally? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I, don't have a, uh, I don't have a really clear memory, but I, I'm pretty sure it was, you know, uh, same as AOL, it was CD-ROMs that were sent out by I think it was the major um, the major telecommunications company back then, which was called Telecom. And New Zealand, uh, for a long time, New Zealand just had the one telecoms company. So it was basically the dominant um, company, and that was the company that introduced the, uh, the internet to New Zealand. And I, I think um, it was called Extra, X-T-R-A, and um, I believe that they sent out CD-ROMs in the early days, and that's how you connected um, to a, a similar service to AOL. So it would have been, you know, a walled garden type of experience. And, um, yeah, I th- that's that's about all I remember of it, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. And nowadays uh, it's it's generally like here, you, your ISP is, is your cable provider or, or something like that? Yeah, there's now uh, quite a lot of competition in terms of ISPs. So um, yeah, it's it's much more competitive now. But the government did have to um, step in, I think, in the early 2000s in order to deregulate the industry, and so that there wasn't just one dominant company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now the competition is actually pretty good. Okay, sorry. Thank you for indulging my interest there. But uh, so, all right, back to your story. Um, so you're you're working at you've you've sort of gone backwards into tech um and you're working at ericsson this is the early 2000s so how about um discovering blogging and and deciding that you want to try experimenting with blogging yeah i think um first i was um like a a fan of reading the early blogs and that was in the early 2000s um probably some in the late 90s as well but definitely specifically Oh, uh, uh, Dave Weiner. I was a big fan of Scripting News, uh, which is Dave Weiner's blog. Right. Um, and he had built a product called Radio Userland, which I think was the first kind of blogging product that I that I used uh, quite a lot. I mean, I did use things like GeoCities uh, before that, but in terms of writing blogs, I'm, I, I think I played around with LiveJournal, and um, uh, I think LiveJournal. There was another one. I can't remember the name of it now. But um, Radio Userland was the one that I um, used most regularly in the early 2000s. And uh, that was a product that you actually downloaded onto your computer. So it was desktop software. Mm-hmm. And one of the features was that you could um, subscribe to other Radio Userland blogs. Um, and at that point in the early 2000s, there was a, a small uh, but very vibrant community, which I really enjoyed reading. Um, people like John Udell, um, Dave Weiner himself. Uh, oh, there was a bunch of other people as well. Um, but I, I just I, I just really enjoyed reading uh, what they were writing about, which a lot of it was was focused on blogging software, RSS technology, which was in its very early days back then, and um, things like uh, wikis, 
And um, I found myself really drawn to kind of that combination of uh, writing and technology that I was kind of searching for in the 90s. Um, it was finally starting to happen with blogging. So that's what kind of pulled me in. And um, and I played around with uh, my own blog. I kind of, I had a, there was a precursor to Read, Write, Web. Um, I think I named it uh, Modern Web at one point. Mm-hmm. But it was basically just a, a link blog, uh, which means that, you know, you just uh, uh, do a little quote from somebody else and put a link to it. So I wasn't, at that point, I wasn't confident enough to do my own writing and put it on the web. Uh, I was still kind of learning and up- upskilling and building websites. So, um, yeah, that was kind of in 2000, 2001, 2002 era. So when do you, when do you get the confidence to start doing your own writing and, and what, do you, what do you get the confidence to write about? Yeah, so it was, um, I think at the end of 2002, I decided, okay, well, if I'm really going to upskill myself in, in this technology, then I need to start writing original content. And it was also something that I wanted to do anyway because I was always interested in writing and I've you know, been writing private things but never published them. So I decided in 2003 uh, I will start my own uh, Radio Userland web blog but I'll write original content this time and, and not use it as a link blog. So I specifically kind of set myself that goal and um, in April 2003 I started Read Write Web um, as a Radio Userland blog and my first, my very first post was actually called the Read Write Web, and uh, I wrote about uh, Tim Berners Lee's creation of the browser and and the web and the World Wide Web, and Dave Weiner what he was uh, writing about. So I sort of riffed on that. Right. So and actually, that- actually, uh, go into that just for a second because the name Read Write Web is actually it's referring to Tim Berners Lee's original ideas for for the web and things like that. Yeah, that's correct. Um, a lot of the research that I'd done and um, just upskilling myself, I discovered that Tim Berners-Lee originally wanted the World Wide Web to be uh, a two-way experience, so not only just receiving information via the web, but uh, creating it as well. Um, and for various reasons, his uh, first browser, which was a, a read-write browser, uh, didn't uh, didn't become the success story on the web. That That was Mosaic, and Mosaic was a basically a read-only browser to start with that kind of chopped off all the the creation functionality. Um, I mean, you could still, you know, obviously code HTML and, and create websites that way, but it wasn't a simple experience. It wasn't something that uh, non-technical people could easily do. So, um, so but uh, in Tim Berners-Lee, and also he wrote about it in his um, his book, um, that uh, his 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 goal was always to create an experience that people could both receive and consume information and create it as well. So I was fascinated by that theory and that was something that Dave Weiner was uh, writing a lot about as well. And with Radio Userland trying to help people uh, to create content. So that was, I guess um, the theme right from the start of my blog, read, write, web. For, just for just indulge me again, um, because this is a period that I'm so nostalgic for. Is those early blogging days where um, there's not a lot of people doing it. So you know things like blog rolls were a big deal because it it, it was how you would discover <laughs> who else in the world was out there blogging. So uh, uh, just describe for for us that that early community and the, those early people that 
that created that first blogging community? Yeah, it it was um, it was a, a fascinating community of people, um, and they were all interested in, to one degree or another, creating uh, websites and uh, content on the web that uh, encouraged a kind of two-way experience. Um, so there were people that I subscribed to in my blog role, for example, who were uh, writing about education. So they were, you know, that was their their topic was education. But um, but I was fascinated by what what those people were thinking and writing about in terms of using the web and using computer technology for education purposes. And uh, there were other people writing about other topics as well, whether it be enterprise or. Um, you know, or uh, or anything really, or podcasting, which was another kind of early uh, topic back then. And um, it was the other great thing about that time was that everybody would read each other's blogs, but they would also comment on them, or uh, or or write a write a blog post on their own blog blog and point back to the the original post, which was called Trackback back mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm which is a term I think has become obsolete, but well, that was still, amazing. It still exists, but it's not as important, yeah. Yeah, yeah true. Yeah, so, um, but back then, trackback was kind of a major part of that ecosystem, uh, and it encouraged people to both read other people's blogs and also to write responses, whether that be by a comment or writing a post on your own blog. And so it was kind of a, um, it was a very, uh, the, the ecosystem was very encouraging of newcomers, I found, uh, which was another great thing about it. Um, and these days we would call it an interest network, um, you know, because you, you were basically subscribing to people because you were interested in what they were writing about and vice versa. So it wasn't, it wasn't really a social network, although you did, you know, become friends with some of those people. It was more about the content that you were both interested in. So, um, and I kind of think uh, we've we've lost some of that in, in today's tools. Um, and you have a tool like Twitter, not to get too far ahead, but Twitter, which could be a really amazing interest network, but um, it's nowhere near as good as blogging in those early days because mm-hmm. blogging was just, it was both a community and a, and an ecosystem where you learnt a lot and you know able to contribute a lot as well. Well, about that idea of it being a community, you know. Um, when you look, when people look back on it now and they they see the the you know the Marcoses in 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 politics or Gruber and for Apple blogs and things like that like and and they think well um, they're these huge names now because they were there first and so they you know they've had all this time to accumulate audiences and things like that but I it's I remember this and it was so fascinating to watch it evolve but at the beginning since there were so few people doing it these weren't big names these were just <laughs> These were just, you know, other commenters, other writers on the web, and 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 it was just this this small thing. Exactly, um, and I think, to be honest with you, I think the lack of ego back then was a big part of the the appeal of of blogging in the early days. Um, I think these days, uh, you know, people on Twitter they can amass sort of huge followings, and on Facebook as well, but uh, they they. But kind of kind of come separated from the community in a way, and you mentioned you know people like Gruber who have been very successful, hugely successful, and are now major influences in in the industry. But um, 
I think what I most enjoyed about the early days was it was it was much more egalitarian. So, you know, for example, Dave Weiner, who was kind of a, a star of that scene back in the early days, he was, um, you know, he was just as willing to, to read what I was writing as, you know, to read another kind of star like John Udell. And uh, I, I thought the whole scene back then was very open-minded in that way. And the fact that I was from New Zealand, there was this, uh, nobody from New Zealand writing stuff about technology and all the, the existing community back then was willing to, to read it and listen to it and, you know, be open to my ideas, uh, I thought was just an amazing, amazing thing. And I still do. You know, uh, Dave Weiner keeps coming up in this conversation and I'm in the midst of negotiating with him to come on the show. Uh, and I know he listens occasionally. So Dave, if you're listening, another reminder that uh, you should definitely come on and, and contribute to, to remembering all this stuff. Um, do you remember the maybe not the, the the first post exactly, but the first thing that you did on your blog that, that got a lot of play, that got a lot of attention? Um, I can't remember a specific post, but um, what I do remember in the early days in 2003 when I started it was uh, I think for the first two or three months, nobody was reading what I was writing. And that was to be expected because I, I didn't know anybody. But I was also um, commenting a lot on other bloggers, particularly in that radio userland um, sphere. And I was linking to those people as well with, with what I was writing. And very slowly, I'd find that, you know, certain people would link back to me. Um, and, it, you know, it might have been a Dave Weiner, it might have been John Udell. I, I honestly can't remember who it was. I think Robert Scoble was in that scene back then. And mm -hmm. I think he commented mm -hmm. on a couple of things in the early days. So, um, yeah, I think it, it was more of a gradual thing, really. Uh, and gradually people got to know who I was and what I was writing about and what I was interested in. And um, and, and it sort of, uh, I, I guess I kind of got myself into the scene that way. Um, but uh, with Read Right Web, the, whole, the history of Read Right Web in general was more one of evolution. There are a couple of tipping points, but... Certainly in the early days, there wasn't a big tipping point in 2003. Mm -hmm. So, right, because you're still doing this in your spare time. You've got your day job, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. And so, obviously, at the very beginning, there's zero notion that this could be a business, that this could be your, your full-time gig. Yeah. In fact, there was, there was no money in blogging back then at all. Um, so... For 2003 and, and also for all of 2004, it was a completely amateur blog, um, and I was doing it uh, part-time. And it wasn't until 2005 that I got my first advertisement on the blog. How, how did that come about? Um, so uh, over 2004, I'd, um, I'd started to build up quite a, a really good network of people in the startup community, and particularly in Silicon Valley, because um, at that time it was uh, there was a lot of experimentation happening in terms of people building companies uh, with you know RSS or blogging technology, um, social software I think was kind of the term bandied about at that point. But it was very early days and nobody had really sort of built a, a breakout product. So they were all of those people I found well a lot of those people were reading my blog because I was writing about those technologies as well and trying to figure out, you know, what's next and where it goes. And so it turned out that um, a lot of the builders of um, 
what came to be known as Web 2.0 later on were reading my blog and uh, they were some of them were blogging themselves and I was reading them. So um, I think my first advert in 2005 was due to one of those people that was reading me. Um, I, 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 I think I was the one that reached out to them and saying, and I reached out to a few people and said, I know you're building a new product. Would, would you be interested in putting a banner on Read, Write, Web? Um, as a kind of experiment, and uh, one of those people said, "Yes, let's give it a go," and that's that's how my first ad came about. Mm-hmm. And do you know who, who who the ad was for? Yeah, I've um, I've got a note of it here. It was for a company called the Port Network. Uh, the the Port is one word. Uh-huh. I don't think they exist anymore, but I think they were some kind of early social network type of product. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's around 2005. You're saying that that you feel like it's it's gaining this momentum that it's starting to become something a little more serious. Yes, um, and the other thing I just remembered about that first ad was that uh, it was on a, a weekly um, article that I did called the Web 2.0 Weekly Wrap Up, mm. which um, was kind of the first. Um, I guess that was the first regular series that became a success on on Read Right Web because it was a wrap-up of all the major news about this thing called Web 2.0. Well, you know what? Let's go into that for a second because that is so important for Web 2.0. I I talked to Calacanis recently and I said, you know, the conferences were so important. But it really was also the blogs, obviously, you know, TechCrunch, GigaOM, things like that, that sort of signaled to people like me that were there at the time that, um, you know, things are happening again. There's, there's, there's new energy here. There's, there's a new movement here. And so you're saying that, that sort of what, what, what took off was exactly that was like, you're covering that there's, there's new energy in, in tech again. Yeah. And I, I remember the first web 2.0 conference, um, was at the end of 2004, uh, I, I didn't attend that one, um, but I remember covering it on the blog. And um, and so this, yeah, Tim O'Reilly and others coined this term Web 2.0. Um, how do you pronounce it, Web 2.0? Yeah, I have always said Web 2.0, but uh, uh, you can say, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> For some reason, I've always called it Web 2.0, but um, yeah, yeah. I, I, anyway. I'm, I'm sure that's potato, so, potato sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So that kind of, um, but but all that was doing was really giving a name to something that had already been happening all throughout 2004 and even into 2003 as well. There was this kind of um, this kind of swirling of activity around, you know, uh, two-way technologies, whether it be uh, blogging or wikis or, or whatever. Well, and also and, things like AJAX are coming out, and and the, the right. web is getting dynamic again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, yeah, we we. Uh, 2.0 was kind of the term that was given to this. And I started using that right at the start of 2005. And in fact, my first uh, Web 2.0 weekly wrap-up was right at the beginning of January 2005. And I decided, well, if that's the term that's being uh, used, then I'll use that to talk about these, um, you know, to do a weekly wrap-up of these technologies. And um, so that did end up being sort of a groundswell of uh, interest in those technologies, um, you know, partly because it was creating a more dynamic web, 
but also because there were opportunities to create new types of companies uh, in that era. And and so I found that my blog became kind of uh, um, one of one of the main tech blogs talking about those kind of things. And in fact, I remember when TechCrunch started, um, I think that was um, mid-2005. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Michael Arrington reached out to me uh, the very first week that he started that and said, you know, I've got a new blog called TechCrunch and I've been, you know, I'm a fan of Read Right Web, love what you're doing. So I got to know him uh, that way. And, uh, and in fact, when I eventually got to Silicon Valley, which was, you know, around September 2005, uh, I stayed at Mike's place. Um, so it was, a, uh, and again, it's kind of an example of like the community aspect back then of, of blogging was, um, was such that you could sort of make friends that way. And, uh, yeah, it was really enjoyable. So when do you, uh, when can you, uh, quit your day job? Um, yeah, I just, I think it was, oh, I honestly can't remember. I had to look on my LinkedIn. Um, but it was sometime around, it was either late 2005 or, Early two thousand six that I, I quit think, my day job. I think job. I've heard you or seen you say before it was early two thousand six. Yeah. Okay. That sounds right. Because uh, initially, I when I quit my day job, um, I was I was a web manager for an energy company called Contact Energy in New Zealand. So I quit that and I did uh, consulting work um, with some Silicon Valley startups uh, just to um, pave the way until Red Right Web you know, earned more money. And also, I, I think I had a couple of other blogging jobs as well. I worked for ZDNet for a little time, um, doing a Web 2.0 blog for them. So, yeah, the, the advertising for Read Right Web didn't really, it was kind of a slow evolution. And it wasn't until, I think, late 2006 that I was able to um, completely focus on Read Right Web. Well, you know what we haven't talked about at all yet as we're getting into this is this is your your full-time gig is the mechanics of doing it. So, um are like how many posts like let, uh, let's use two, 2006 as an example as you're going pro. Like um how many posts are you doing a day? Where are you getting your news from that sort of thing? Yeah, in um 2006 um I'm it, it was at least a daily blog posts. But the other thing that happened in 2006 was I also got uh, guest bloggers um, to, to do posts as well on the blog. Um, there were a couple of, uh, Alex Iskold was one of them, uh, Emery Sokolu, and there were, there were a few others as well. And they um, volunteered to, to write analysis posts about, um, you know, various aspects of Web 2.0. And these were all guys that were, had an engineering background or who were kind of Builders of the web, but they they wanted a platform to um, to write about their theories of the web and um, you know where they thought things were going, and also you know to be honest, it was a good kind of self promotion tool for them as well. Um, but it was great great for me because it was it was brilliant content, and right, right. I mean I had to um, do a fair bit of editing back in those days as well. Um, but that helped uh, ramp up the content side of Read Right Web as well as my own daily blogging. And what about um, the, the the time difference? Uh, being in New Zealand, like, so are you getting up at insane hours to try to cover news and, and get posts out and things like that? 
Well, uh, yeah, the time difference is, is actually not too bad. It's, um, you know, between three and five hours behind. And uh, so by the time, if I get up at, say, seven o'clock, it might be, you know, 11 a.m. in the morning in Silicon, on the West Coast. Um, but the, I guess the thing I found was that right from the start, I was I was never that interested in breaking news. I was much more interested in analyzing the news. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when Read, Write, Web really ramped up, which we can get into later, I actually ended up hiring people, you know, in America who were kind of fascinated by breaking news. And Marshall Kirkpatrick was the, the main one. Uh, he was just brilliant at that. But my main strength, and in particular 2006 period, really showed and then was kind of analyzing what was happening. And that was kind of the appeal of Read, Write, Web as well. That's why people read it, because mm. it was uh, analyzing what was happening and, and trying to decipher it for, for other people, particular builders. Well, what about literally the, the distance from Silicon Valley? Did you ever encounter any sort of, uh, well, what does this guy out in New Zealand know about what's going on in the valley? Um, I Actually, I don't think I ever found that at all. And partly it was because people in the valley didn't really know what was happening either. It was um, everybody was experimenting and just trying new things and seeing if it would work or not. And you know, blogging was in its um, kind of in a transition period from amateur to professional, but so was everything else really. You know, um, I think uh, when did YouTube come along? It was two thousand five, yeah, so yeah, it was very yeah. that, yeah, and. Um, you know, other companies like Flickr and uh, Delicious. Delicious, yeah. Yeah. So um, nobody was really an expert. Um, and so they were, they were people were more than willing to, to listen to anybody with ideas, basically. Well, you know what? You, um, uh, you're making me think, of course, of this time period. So um, another nuts and bolts question is about, you know, we live in a world now where there are these platforms for um, – uh, distributing content for virality but so again like the 2005 2006 era like what makes a post go viral is it like getting on the front page of dig say um yeah the dig was um for a for a while there dig was uh, a big um factor but even before that i guess in say 2005 when you know uh it was just starting to become commercial and you know TechCrunch started and I think Mashable started later on that year as well. Um, so we were all just figuring it out. And, and I think in those early days, we were linking a lot to each other, particularly, you know, because I was friends with uh, Michael Arrington. I, um, you know, he used to link to my stuff and I used to link to his stuff. And that was that was one way to sort of drive traffic. Uh, I, th- I remember Slashdot was a big, in the very right, early days, Slashdot. Metafilter as well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think I remember now my very first kind of breakout hit post was because I got onto the slash dot front page, and I think that that was in two thousand four sometime. Mm-hmm. Might be in the end of two thousand three even. So when do you um, when are you able to actually hire writers? Is that several years on? Am I skipping way ahead, or, or when when does it become like a business where you've got uh, employees and you're basically becoming an editor? Yeah, well, it was. Um, Actually, March in 2007, when I hired my first writer, there was a guy called Josh Catone. Um, he was based in um, 
somewhere in the New York region, I think. And um, yeah, he was, um, and that was obvious. I think by that point, it was, um, you know, I'd uh, it was my full time job, and I money was coming in from adverts, so I had enough money to hire a, a writer. So Josh was the first one, and um, oh, I think um, I can't remember how quickly it sort of ramped up from then. But I've got a note here that Marshall joined in September two thousand seven. Mm. So uh, and he was um, he was the lead. I, I signed him up as the lead writer, um, which is basically uh, writing the news, you know. Because right. I found by by that point I was very busy with a lot of other stuff, whether it was managing the adverts or making sure the site, you know, kept up and doing other bits and pieces on the design. So um, I specifically hired Marshall to be the lead writer, just because I had lots of other things on my plate at that time. Are you still running it off of um, the radio userland software, or do you go to WordPress at some point? Like, I'm talking like 2007-ish. Like, what are you running off of at that point? Yeah, definitely by that point it was on movable type. Mm. Uh, I think I moved on to the. Uh, may have been even 2004. I I, I was only on radio userland for about a year or so um, before I migrated to movable type. And um, we pretty much stayed on movable type right up until the acquisition in 2011. And all of the the writers that you end up um, uh, hiring, they're they're all over the world. They're just working remotely, right? Yeah, um, most of them were in America, um, either on the west coast or the east coast. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, so. Uh, Marshall is based in Portland, and um, I ended up hiring a couple of other people from Portland as well. Um, and uh, yeah, it, um, when, when, that... when you when you find these people, is it because that there there are there commenters on your blog that that uh, seem to be smart? Like how how do you find a Marshall? Yeah, well, um, with Josh actually, Josh, um, I think he um, originally reached out to me to do a guest post and. He did one or two guest posts, and uh, I remember, you know, having a discussion with him over email and Skype. And um, you know, he was looking for work, so I, and at that point, I was able to hire somebody. So based on what he'd written, I thought he'd be a really good fit. As for Marshall, I, he actually was with TechCrunch before joining ReadWriteWeb. Oh, I forgot that. Um, yeah, so um, he was a you know he was a professional blogger already. Um, and uh, he was interested in joining Read Write Web, you know, because it was there was more of an opportunity for him to take a leadership role, um, which turned out to be the case. And I was obviously very interested in him because he was a uh, a great blogger at TechCrunch. So um, yeah, that's how I found those two guys. Well, tell me a little bit about uh, competing in that scrum of specifically the the, the tech blogs of that era. You know, TechCrunch, uh, Mashable. Ars Technica, you know, names that we still know today, but, or, or, or like Gigom, which is not around today, but like, um, standing out in that crowd. And, uh, we've, we've talked about how early on it was this community, but as it professionalizes, how do you, how do you operate in that ecosystem? Yeah, it's, um, there was definitely, um, a turning point where, um, things got, you know, more competitive. Um, so in the early days, you know, um, 
I, I was very friendly with um, a lot of the people in the tech blogging community, you know, Arrington and, and those kind of people. Um, but, you know, it did get competitive, I guess, in, you know, 2007, and especially 2008 when things really ramped up. And also I think we were all um, comparing ourselves uh, what, what our ranking was on Technorati, which was right. at the time kind of the ranking mechanism for blogs. So, um, you know, Read Right Web was in the top 20 of Technorati in 2007. And, and I think it was at that point, you know, when bloggers started to see themselves on Technorati that it became kind of a competition uh, to see who could, you know, be the top tech blog. Um, so, um, but at that time I was also traveling back and forth to Silicon Valley quite a lot. So I was, you know, friendly with a lot of people in, in Silicon Valley and in the blogging community and actually had met them, a lot of them as well. So, um, but yeah, definitely there was, um, when, especially when professional blogs started to make, uh, you know, a lot of money, then, uh, I guess, uh, things did get very sort of competitive and, and friendships did, you know, become secondary in, in some ways, unfortunately. I haven't asked at all about um, funding. Did you entirely bootstrap or did you ever take any VC money at any point? Yeah, it was entirely bootstrapped. And um, and I think the main reason for that was because it was, um, it was an evolutionary uh, growth pattern. Um, you know, it was, um, started out getting one or two ads, then a few more. Then I was able to hire somebody and a few more ads and I was able to hire a second person and so on. So um, I, I never actually found that I needed um, investment money. And um, and I, I did certainly hit offers to, to invest in, in the company, but um, I, I wanted to continue building it myself. And, and because there was a lot of advertising coming in, you know, in 2007, 2008 onwards, there was there was really no need for investment, and most of the other blogs at that time were the same as well. They were they were mostly self funded. Just on a on a personal level, um, the evolution into now it's a it's a business, it's a publication. You have employees. Um, on on that personal level, how did that feel? But then also on the level of blogs becoming businesses, the professionalization of this industry, how did that feel? Well, it was um, certainly a very hectic time. And um, it was, um, uh, there was a lot of, you know, uh, strain on the business side and I was juggling a lot of things. Um, because in those days, you know, 2007, you know, even 2008, I was still doing a lot of the um, managing of various aspects, whether it be advertising or design or technical. Um, I was still managing a lot of that myself. And I, I certainly had help on the technical side. I had um, um, a couple of guys, you know, helping me do the webmaster stuff. And and, and my the person I dealt with on the, on the web hosting side was, was uh, I relied on that person a lot. Um, but it was still managing all those strands was was quite a stressful thing at that time, and um, and also writing as well, obviously. Uh, so the um, the growth aspect was um, it was really a, it was a roller coaster ride. There was there were a lot of um, a lot of highs, but it was there was some lows as well in terms of you know maybe the site crashed one day and I was scrambling to to get it back up again or. Um, 
you know, maybe there was a problem with um, a certain um, blogger that I'd hired or, or so on. But so all these kind of things were, um, it was very exciting, but it was also very stressful at the same time. Um, what's, what's the staff at, at its height uh, or before you leave or, or whatever, uh, around like 1920 maybe? Yeah, I, I think there was around, and it was in the early 20s at its height. So uh, I think it was, I counted maybe 22 at its peak in terms of employee numbers. Uh, not not all of them full-time. I think there was, it was around about 15 kind of people full-time at its peak and various part-time people, whether on the technical or business side. Well, let's, let's uh, we've already talked about some of them, but let, let's, uh, give you the opportunity to talk about some of the uh, insanely talented people that you worked with, like Dan Frommer, Marshall Kirkpatrick, Sarah Perez. Um, how, how were you able to find such talented people that were able to go on and, and have these careers that have evolved and, and, and been so amazing? Yeah, I, I think um, uh, on the on the blogger side, it was just um, I, I managed to find some really amazingly talented people and I always use um, Sarah Perez as, as probably the, the best example. At the time I hired Sarah, she um, she was completely unknown, and um, probably I don't even think she was doing professional blogging at all. Um, but she was obviously we I think we got into some kind of an email conversation, and she was obviously very passionate about the you know tech, what was happening in the tech world. Uh, she she lived in and still lives in Tampa, Florida. So she wasn't part of the kind of inner circle in Silicon Valley at all, but um, I just um, I think and I think she was either contributing to a, her own blog or or running her own personal blog, and it was through that that I discovered her, and you know I really enjoyed her writing, and I thought it was it would be a great fit for Read Right Web because it was it was both um, very insightful and it was also analytical. Um, and she wasn't just talking about the news; she was actually, you know, adding value to it. Um, and so, um, yeah, when, when we communicated, I thought, you know, she would be great for Read Right Web. So I hired her on that basis. And you know, and these days, you know, she's a superstar at uh, TechCrunch. She's one of their top bloggers. So, um, and there are other people, similar people, um, who have gone on to great things as well. Um, you know, Clint Finlay, who now writes for Wired. Um, and uh, there's various other people that I could mention, but I'll probably forget names, so I won't try. But they're all kind of talented, uh, unknown bloggers at the time I hired them, but I just thought they would be a really good fit for Read Right Web based on the type of content that they were writing. So that's really how it evolved from there, really. Uh, was it an advantage for you and for Read right to have been outside of Silicon Valley almost – Almost, I'm, I'm asking almost from an editorial perspective or from the, the way that you're – because you, you focus on analysis. So, like, being outside, was that almost an advantage to you? Yeah, it definitely was. Um, and um, in retrospect, you, you can definitely see the, the value of being outside of the valley because also in that sort of period, 2005, 2006, um, there was a lot of kind of um, gossipy stuff happening uh, and a lot of insider stuff happening. And just because of the very nature of uh, where I was from, you know, and where I was still running the business, I wasn't party to a lot of that insider stuff. But it ended up being an advantage because, you know, Read Right Web 
was popular because it was analytical and it took kind of a, um, you know, a, almost a bird's eye view of what was happening and trying to um, trying to pick it apart in terms of the te- technology itself and not in terms of personalities and and business dealings and so on. Um, and so yeah, because we write and because we couldn't um, we couldn't get the sort of insider gossip that would be kind of uh, you know, breaking news in terms of business dealings, we had to focus on the technology itself and the products itself and the trends, um, you know, which was our strength anyway. So, yes, it was definitely an advantage from that perspective. Um, so I'm a little I'm a little unclear about the chronology or whatever, but you do you step down first or sell first? Uh, um, what, what, how, do, how, how do you uh, leave ReadWrite? Yeah, so um, I think first I should mention that um, one of the key highs in ReadWriteWeb's history was um, the hiring of uh, Sean Emirati as COO. Mm. That was in December 2009. And um, at that stage, we were enjoying, you know, uh, huge growth. And we just had our first event in October 2009. Oh, and also, I, I forgot you, uh, you're, you're syndicating your content to the New York Times and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that happened at the end of 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the previous um, COO, Bernard Lahn, um, he probably um, he probably got that uh, New York Times deal, um, which was great for us because, you know, uh, having our content on the web pages of the New York Times was just um, an amazing boost, um, not in terms of traffic, but in terms of just reputation. Credibility. You know, credibility, yeah. But, um, yeah, and... and in December 2009, Sean uh, took over as the COO, and um, he made a huge difference in terms of the profitability of the company. It was already profitable, but he sort of ramped it up in terms of uh, growth, and, and you know we did more events, and uh, we did premium reports in 2010, um, and Sean was a big uh, driver of all those initiatives, and um, so when we um, when so. We eventually sold the company at the end of 2011, and uh, I, I was I led the company right up until that time. Um, and so at that point, the leadership team was myself, Sean, and Marshall. And um, yeah, so we eventually sold the company at the end of 2011 to Say Media, which was based in San Francisco. And you felt like it found a happy home. Yeah, because um, I think at that point. Um, heading into 2011, the the business was growing so fast, both in terms of page views, in terms of advertising revenue, and in terms of staff, that I really felt that um, there were two options for me in order to continue the growth. One would would have been to take an uh, an investment, uh, which was the path that, for example, GigaOM took. The other path would be to uh, to sell to a, a larger company, a larger media company, and in particular, I wanted um, that company to be in, in based in the U.S. because I felt it was really important for the continued growth of ReadWriteWeb to be based in the U.S. Um, and for various personal reasons, I couldn't move over to the U.S. So, um, so I decided that you know selling to a, a bigger company was the way to go. So um, that was the process that we took undertook in 2011, um, and um, 
we, we spoke to a number of uh, other companies, but uh, Say Media was the one that um, that uh, you know made it made a made a good offer, and uh, we felt at the time that they were a good fit because they wanted to um, uh, get into um, the world of uh, publishing in a bigger way. So they were willing to put resources behind um, Read Write Web, and also they had um, acquired Media Temple as well. Uh, sorry, not Media Temple, um, Movable Type. Right, right. Company behind Movable Type. So uh, they actually ended up owning the um, uh, the pl- publishing platform that we were still using. Um, mind you, we were on the open source version, but but still we we felt that was another reason why it might be a good fit. Um, so, yeah, we ended up selling to them at the end of 2011. Uh, well, before we, we close by uh, talking about what you're up to these days, just a, a couple more um, just general questions. Uh, the first one would be... Um, what did Web 2.0 mean to you? And I mean that in like a in a very general way. On the one hand, it was sort of this renaissance, like <laughs> the internet isn't over. Like, there's still new ideas and and new companies to be started. But also, were there ideas inherent? We you spoke on this a little bit in in what Web 2.0 was all about. About you know wisdom of crowds and like um you know the the back and forth between the audience uh, that sort of thing that that maybe um that was key to what you thought web 2.0 was about that maybe even hasn't you know aged very well or or, or gone through to the modern era yeah i i think for me the the sort of core of what uh was termed web 2.0 was the democratization of um publishing onto the web and um, it took sort of uh, various, um, became sort of various things. You know, blogging was an early kind of example of that democratization. And indeed, my own career at Read Right Web was built on top of that. Um, and for that, I'm very grateful for. But, you know, over time, it also took other avenues, for example, um, social networks, um, to, you know, Facebook, um, before that, MySpace um, and Twitter and things like that. Are really built on the whole that whole kind of democratization of of um, media concept, um, so that people could were much more involved in um, in their world in the media world, and um, these tools could be used by anybody um, to talk about their daily lives or their work or whatever. And I just uh, you know, and you can see it in tools like YouTube as well and Snapchat these days. Um, and I, I think that's kind of the, the main legacy of uh, what was Web 2.0 is that um, tools became available that made it really easy for people to uh, both consume and create content. And uh, I think as to what it, what it's become now, I, I am kind of concerned that um, that democratization has been skewed in a lot of ways, you know, um, certain people using social media, for example, to exaggerate or, um, you know, um, stir up trouble or, you know, disseminate false news has has been a big story recently. And so maybe the the tools have been kind of abused in a way so that um, while they're democratized, it's also being used, you know, in a a bad way. in a lot of in a lot of the um, social media universe at the moment, and um, 
The other thing that happened, I think, which um, was a bit of a shame, was that you know, um, self-interest and ego took over in terms of people using these tools. So a lot of the stuff that you see on Twitter and Facebook is, um, you know, self-interested and is egotistical. And I've got a term for I call it selfish media because I, I think it's um, turned into that. And a lot of the stuff that um, you know that you subscribe to or follow, it's um, it's very self-interested and, and doesn't really um, it's not really doing much good in the world. So I, I kind of hope that the next wave of tools changes that and gets back to that kind of uh, community aspect that we enjoyed in the early blogging days because uh, I think that's missing in today's social media landscape. There's not a lot of community. It's basically just people using these tools as a megaphone um, or you know to, to spread false information. So um, I really hope the next wave of innovation kind of brings back that community feel of, of blogging in the early days. Um, slightly shifting gears a bit, uh, what is, what's the tech scene like in New Zealand, the entrepreneurial and, and tech scene? Yeah, there's a, a thriving, uh, tech scene here. Um, in fact, um, where I live, uh, Wellington, it's uh, got a nickname Silicon Valley. Uh, so, because there's a lot of startups in, in, in Wellington. So there's a Wellington, you know, there's, more, Wellington more than Auckland. Yeah, uh, Wellington is probably the the city in New Zealand that's got the the most um, tech companies, mm-hmm. um, and we've got you know we've got a, there's a company called Zero which is a, a big success. Um, it makes online accounting software, and that's been probably the big success story over the last five or six years in terms of companies making an impact from New Zealand. So um, yeah, there's a, there's a thriving scene here. It's, it's obviously nowhere near as big as what's happening in America, but um, it's, uh, there's a, there's a lot of innovation happening and, um, and, you know, there's a good, um, sort of a bit of a part of the angel investment community here. So, um, I think there's a lot of, uh, passionate investors as well. Uh, well, so to wrap up, I, I do want to get into, uh, what you're up to today. Um, in, in 2004, you wrote a book, um, trackers, how technology is helping us monitor and improve our health. So that, that was a, that was a nonfiction book, obviously, right? Yeah, that was um, published at the end of 2014. 2014, uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so so when I, I, I left uh, Red Rice in October 2012, because um, I worked for um, the company right up to then, mm-hmm. and um, so at the time I left, I, I decided, well, now's the time for me to, um, to do something I've always wanted to do, which is write a book. Um, so I did that, and, and over 2013... And into 2014, I wrote uh, Trackers, um, and um, that was published towards the end of 2014. Uh, and it was really a kind of a chronicle of uh, what was happening in consumer health technology with companies like Fitbit and 23andMe, um, and how you know th- these companies enabled people to um, to use technology to monitor their own health. And um, there was kind of there was a personal story behind that as well because um, I. Uh, developed uh, type 1 diabetes in November 2007 was when I was diagnosed with that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, using the technology tools that I'd sort of um, <clears throat> became familiar with in, in the rewrite web days had helped me a lot in dealing with that. So uh, that was one of the motivations of writing trackers. But just recently, um, 
you have written a non or I'm sorry, a fiction book. Yes, um, that's right. so, so tell us about uh, Presence. Yeah, um, so Presence is um, a science fiction novel, and it's, um, the concept is about um, the future of virtual reality. So I, um, it's set in 2051, and I imagine, you know, what would virtual reality be, be like then? And um, uh, so the protagonist uh, works for a, 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 a social network, a kind of a Facebook-like social network called Doppel, which is a completely virtual reality social network. And so there's kind of a... Um, uh, a murder mystery uh, wrapped around that, but um, really, I, I wanted to use that book to explore where things are headed with virtual reality, which is a very um, hot topic at the moment. Definitely, um, yeah. So, I, um, and yeah, I, I, I wanted to do science fiction because I wanted to kind of use my the skills that I built up at Read Write Web in terms of analyzing technology and predicting where it might go in and use those skills in science fiction and sort of look, you know, quite, quite far ahead and um, extrapolate the current technology into a future era and, you know, see the impacts on society and culture and, and the individual um, personality. So um, that's what I tried to do with our presence. And um, I, I enjoyed that process so much that I'm going to continue writing science fiction books about technology. Um, my next one is actually going to be about artificial intelligence so um, extrapolating, you know, we were we were headed with artificial intelligence, which is obviously going to be a huge um, technological shift over the coming years. So um, yeah, I'm I'm really excited to continue down that path. Well, and and presence has gotten good reviews not only from from tech people like Brad Feld, but also from from what I don't know, real writers, <laughs> actual <laughs> the science uh, science fiction writers, and and people like that. Yeah, and. Um, and in fact, um, so I, I, what I did with Presence was I self-published it using um, Amazon self-publishing tools. So it's available as an ebook and a print-on-demand. Um, but uh, I found while I was doing that that there's a really thriving community and uh, industry in self-publishing these days. Uh, you know, the term for it is indie publishing. But it, it, it really did remind me of blogging in the early days so much because it's a, it's a great community of people and a lot of them still use blogs um, to, to communicate their ideas and, and interact with each other. So I really enjoyed that aspect of it as well. Um, you know, and, and also you, you just have so much more control um, as a self publisher. Of course, it's very, very difficult to get, you know, attention and to sell the book, but mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's another challenge. <laughs> Well, right. Also, this, it was similar with blogs as well. And by the way, I didn't mean to imply that you're not a real writer because obviously you are. <laughs> so, um, but you know that 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 that's kind of beautiful. It brings us full circle. Um, uh, you're, you're back in this sort of nascent community, and also, hey, look, you're finally using your your, your English literature degree, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, uh, Richard, thanks so much for um, coming on the show. Remembering all that. Um, just a, a really, really great story. I feel like the, the, the blogging entrepreneurs are almost the most fun for me because um, it's not that it's accidental, but it, it, it's like more than other people, it, 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 the success of, of, of bloggers has, was so unplanned, you know? Yeah. And also, I, I think a lot of that was that the early bloggers were very passionate about what they were, what they were writing about. And so that kind of passion... 
kind of stayed with the best bloggers, I think. So um, maybe that's part of it. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, and my personal Twitter is at brianmcc. Thanks for listening.